0: me? Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truths that are so apparent um, from cover to cover, how you are a righteous God and a savior. We choose today, Lord, to come to your word and, and submit ourselves to it. We ask, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and Help us to come to understand what you are wanting us to read here. We choose to come into this time with spiritual eyes wide open, and Lord, we choose to take refuge in you, the righteous judge. Amen. Well, shortly after I moved here to Milwaukee, I had the unexpected privilege of serving as a jury member in Milwaukee County. Um, There was no getting out of this summons for me, or at least I didn't know how to get out of it. So I notified my residency program that I'd be taking two mandatory days off to, I thought, uh, go sit in a room and read or watch Netflix or something. Um, But sure enough, I was called to a courtroom and I was named to a jury for none other than a murder trial Uh, So besides being a fascinating experience and besides learning a lot about our justice system and besides taking a week away from work, um, I think my biggest takeaway is this. Humans just don't know everything. Even with lots of evidence before me, I I still didn't fully know who was telling the truth. I wanted justice to be done. I wanted to make the right call. I wanted, if you will the righteousness or the righteous to be established. And I wanted the evil of this situation to come to an end with the true perpetrator put behind bars. But I I can't know the minds and the hearts or the intentions of people. And even if I did help the other jury members make the right call, we still wouldn't really end evil because the man is still dead. His family's still robbed of him. So I guess my takeaway from that experience is this. I long for a day when someone who truly knows everything about the universe, everything, makes things right. Well, we see a, a similar sentiment in our passage today. The author of this psalm is David, and he's an important king of ancient Israel. And the inscription at the beginning of this psalm in most of your Bibles places its writing at a time where David stands accused of evil. His kingdom stands on the precipice of collapsing around him. Uh, Most likely, the particular event that's referred to here is recounted in in 2 Samuel chapter 16. And while I don't think we need to have all of the specific particulars of the complex and long story um, that's recounted here in mind to make sense of today's passage, I do think that there are a couple general things that will be helpful. So first off, in in this story, David's life is in imminent danger. His own son, Absalom, has staged a coup against him, and if David doesn't flee the city, if he doesn't leave Jerusalem, he will very likely die. Second, we should recognize that what this Cush from the inscription was was doing is that he was slandering David. He was loudly cursing him, throwing rocks at him, throwing dust at him. He's like a really annoying heckler in in, in a sports game, but like a hundred times worse. Um, And this heckler was falsely claiming that everything bad happening to David was God's just judgment against him for evil that he'd done and for usurping the former king's throne. So with that background in mind, I think we immediately see something unexpected in the psalm's opening verses. See, we may get tempted to skip too quickly to this courtroom imagery of the psalm and, and mistake the psalm. For David's, or for simply David's plea that his dangerous life situation might be resolved or that the false claims against him might be resolved so he can just get back to ruling God's people. And to that end, in verse 1, David does appeal to the Lord his God as a refuge, asking him for deliverance from his pursuers. And that part, I think, makes sense to all of us. He's being chased and his life is in danger, so yeah, he should be asking for deliverance. But the surprise comes in verse 2. Less like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. So David, right from the beginning, is helping the reader understand that he's concerned with far more than simply physical. He's seeking deliverance from an enemy, from a pursuer that would tear his soul apart. So right from the first verses, I think this psalm is addressing a question that we need to ask ourselves, and it's the big question for today, the question that I think this passage will answer. How should we seek deliverance from the enemy who would tear our souls apart? I believe Psalm 7 is David's answer to that question, and so my goal today is to show you what I see David doing in this passage, um, which I think can be broken down into four W's who he turns to, who he asks, or what he asks for, excuse me, who the judge is and what he does, four Ws. So that brings us to point number one, the first W, who he turns to. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. So on the one hand, it's really easy to see who David turns to. He turns to the Lord, his God. He turns to a person, not himself, not a place, not a circumstance. But let's look closely at the psalm, particularly in verses 1 through 10, and let's see more of who this God is that David turns to. So first, in verse 1, we see that God is a refuge. So that means someone that can offer protection, someone that can save from a fate that's best to be avoided. And second, we see that God is a deliverer, which is of course similar, but I think it conveys an active role. It, can, it conveys that God is someone who is actively intervening, who can combat David's pursuers and bring David out of their hand. And so just from verse 1, we see that David turns to the Lord, his saving, delivering, refuge God. Verse 2 deepens the saving nature. It deepens this refugeness of God by giving us a glimpse as to what would happen if God did not intervene. If God did nothing, David's soul would be stalked, pursued, pounced on, and torn apart. Just like a lion stalks, pursues, and then tears apart their prey. There's something deeply spiritual about David's concern in this psalm. He's looking at this life situation with spiritual eyes wide open. And he sees the potential somehow for spiritual ruin. And that's why he can only turn to God in this situation. There's nobody else to turn to when it comes to spiritually life or death situations. David can't rely on his physical strength, even though it was considerable. He can't depend on his army or his military knowledge. See, these things can't protect from an enemy that would tear the soul apart. And so we learn that he turns to God, who is spirit. Reading on in verses 3 through 5, we see that David believes this saving, delivering, refuge God of his has the ability to know more about his own past than even he does. He submits himself to God's knowledge, to God's judgment. If I have done this, he says, if there is wrong in my hands... Now, I think it's pretty obvious that David does not sincerely believe he's guilty of what he's being accused of, not in this specific situation. He doesn't actually think that there is wrong in his hands. However, it is interesting that David is letting God be the ultimate judge. We need to note that he is at least allowing room for a God who knows all, even the hearts and minds of people, to bring to light what may be hidden from David himself. And we see the same idea in verse 9 when he describes God as you who test the hearts and the minds. David's teaching us that the God he turns to is not limited in his knowledge, but instead he even knows what people intend and what they think. Next, we see that David turns to a saving, delivering, all-knowing, thought-discerning, refuge God that is also a powerful, sovereign judge. Verse 6, we see that God has appointed a judgment. And verse 7, we see, let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you, over it return on high. What he's doing is he's acknowledging that God is the one ruling and presiding over this great assembly, much like a judge presides over a courtroom. And of course, we see with remarkable clarity in verse 11, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. So in other words, David has shown us the second W, who he turns to. If we were to use these various descriptions of the Lord, of David's God, that we see from Psalm 7, we see that David turns to an all-knowing, a heart and mind discerning, sovereign and righteous judge who is a refuge that saves and delivers. No one less than a God like that. Could truly, in David's eyes, deliver him from an enemy that would tear his soul apart? So that brings us to point two, the second W: What he asks for. And as modern readers, I think we may be tempted to stop at the asking for deliverance part, because that part we understand. Uh, we would want to be delivered from dangerous situations too. But is that all that David is asking for in Psalm seven? I mean, he starts out by asking for deliverance, yes, but then in verses 3 through 5, he does something unexpected. He turns right around and he submits himself for evaluation, even if it means something terrible. Oh Lord, my God, if I've done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. So wait, David's actually asking God to not deliver him. Should he be found guilty? I mean, that's at least unexpected. And David continues the trend of unexpected requests in verse 8. The Lord judges the peoples, judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. And it's so important we catch this. David is asking God to be a righteous, all-knowing judge and to execute that judgment not only on his enemies, but also on himself. We need to see that David submits himself to God's righteous judgment. Now, I don't want to undervalue the fact that he is certainly asking for things that are less surprising to us. He does ask for evil, to be dealt with. Verse 9, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous. And he does ask that this sovereign God, who judges all the peoples, to specifically arise, O oh Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. And yet, and yet, we cannot miss the fact that David asked this righteous God who tests the hearts and minds to judge me according to my righteousness. In other words, David wants the righteousness of God's judgment in its totality. So point number two, what he asks for, he asks that God intervene for the good of everyone through the righteous judgment of everyone, including himself. So these are the first two W's in Psalm 7. And when it comes to seeking deliverance from an enemy that would tear the soul, David has shown us who to turn to and what to ask for. And so what does that mean for us today in 2021 at Redemption Church? And I think it means this. We can seek deliverance from the enemy who seeks to tear our souls apart by taking David's example. And we can do two things. We can turn to God, and we can ask for the righteousness of God's judgment. So application point number one, turn to God. We see in Psalm 7 that David is concerned primarily with spiritual matters. It's almost surprising, and I think it's meant to be, that with such a dramatic story underpinning the writing of the psalm, we see far more of a request for spiritual deliverance than we do for simply physical. So David's going through life with spiritual wide, or spiritual eyes wide open, And I have to ask today, is that our response in life? Are we concerned for our spiritual well-being? Does it cross your mind that you have a real spiritual enemy that's like a lion seeking to overtake your soul and tear it apart? Do you recognize that without God's intervention, there would be no one capable of delivering your soul from being trampled or from being laid in the dust? Do you, like David in Psalm 7, see the danger to your soul? Should you be found to have wrong in your hands? Or should you be found to have repaid a friend with evil? And if that weren't enough, do you see the danger even in plundering your enemy without cause? For friends, if you don't see any danger, you won't turn. You won't turn to a God who's a refuge. You won't turn to the God of Psalm 7 because why would you need to? If there's no real danger, if there's no real enemy, there's no reason for refuge. But I would say choose today to look around you with spiritual eyes open. Choose to recognize that we do have an enemy that seeks to do us harm. And learn today to do what Peter, an apostle who wrote the New Testament book of First Peter, says in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful the devil prowls around you like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. For when you see the danger, you can begin to see the ability of God to deliver. And once you choose to see the possibility that the enemy might actually overtake you, then you choose to see that God is a refuge, just like David does in Psalm 7. And when you turn to him, you can grow into such a confidence in God's power to deliver you that you, number two, ask for the righteousness of God's judgment. So starting with the easy stuff, I really do want you to see in this passage that it is good to want deliverance from the enemy. Please ask for that, and routinely. Also, I wouldn't be faithful to this text if I didn't point out that David wants the outcome of God's judgment to mean amazing things. He wants it to mean the establishment of the righteous, the end of evil and wickedness and protection from the fury of his en- of his enemies. I mean these are amazing God glorifying outcomes and we ought to desire these more than we desire simple physical needs to be met just like David does in Psalm 7. So for our part let's learn how to better seek God's establishment of the righteous in our lives and in our city. Let's get better at saying with David, "Oh let the evil of the wicked come to an end and let's learn together from god's word how to act to oppose evil in our hearts in our minds in our homes in our city country and even our world but but let's do these things with the psalm 7 recognition that the righteous judgments of god are not simply reserved for people that we would call our enemies Please beware of the danger of a self-righteous mindset, a mindset that's really common in America today, a kind of self-righteousness that gets really eager to talk about how God is going to judge this world and those sinners, a kind of spiritual mindset of us versus them, with the us typically being evangelical Christian Americans. It's the same mindset that I'm convinced the prophet Jonah had which led him to hate the people of Nineveh so much that he tried everything he could to just see them judged. That mindset, church, is not what we see in David's prayer here in Psalm 7. Instead, we need to submit even ourselves, especially ourselves, to God's righteous judgment. Because if we want evil to end, if we want the righteous to be established, we need to not harbor evil ourselves And we need to actually truly be counted among the righteous. We need to learn to trust the goodness of God enough, to trust the grace of God enough to consistently submit ourselves to the righteous judgment of God. And in doing that, submit ourselves to the loving care of the saving, delivering refuge that this righteous judge is. So moving on in our passage, back to exposition here. The next W, who the judge is, verses 11 through 16 will teach us that. And verse 11 is the heavy opening statement that almost doesn't need follow-up. God's a righteous judge and a judge who feels indignation every day. So there's two terms here that I think we should explain. The first is indignation. Merriam-Webster dictionary defines indignation this way, Anger aroused by something unjust, unworthy, or unfair treatment. And the second definition I think we need is righteousness. To be righteous, a term that we've used a lot today already, is to be morally right. It's to be perfect in morality and being. So God is described by David to be this morally pure and perfect judge. So pure and so morally right that he cannot help but feel Indignation at this broken and morally corrupt state of creation. See, so the idea of indignation is essential to understanding this passage. Why? Because it illustrates that the corruption of evil in this world is not spiritually neutral. It isn't. It offends God, it's unfair treatment of God, and that's why it can't just be ignored. So, what does God do about it? Verse 12. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He is bent and readied his bow. He's prepared for him deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. This righteous judge will not abide forever indignation. Evil will be put to an end. Mankind will be met with a sharpened sword and a ready bow should they not repent. To repent means to first acknowledge an offense given and then turn from that offense, change behavior in the opposite way, to reverse the offense. So, in other words, should any human fail to recognize that they're actively treating God unfairly, that they're offending God and leading to his indignation, if they don't see this, it will not end well for them. It won't. In verse 14, we see how this happens. Behold, the wicked conceives evil, is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. David describes here the total depravity of the unrepentant human. They're so filled with evil, they conceive it. It naturally comes out of them. It originates in them. And then it's grown, it's incubated, it's nurtured into mischief. And then ultimately it's given life in and of itself as it's birthed out into lies. And make no mistake, David's purposefully using this pregnancy language to communicate the sheer corruption of evil. See, God's original design for human multiplication, his grand vision was that this earth would be increasingly filled with God-worshipping, image-bearing people who multiply his glory. But what's actually happening in this world, which is in rebellion against God, is a mutated version of that multiplication. Instead of multiplying morally right image-bearers and multiplying God-reflecting righteous action, mankind instead conceives evil pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. So instead of God being glorified by the work of man, he's offended by it. So David's point here is that if a man does not repent, if humans don't change their course, they're going to fall into the very pits that they make. Their evil will lead slowly, inevitably, to their own destruction. Their souls will be torn apart. Their glory will be laid in the dust, and they will be trampled. Why? Because the enemy of their soul Their own fallen nature, their own corrupted hearts, will be met with the fiery arrows and the sharpened sword of God's righteous wrath. David's point here is to help us see that the spiritual enemy is far more ourselves than we like to think. The wrath of God will be justly and fairly poured out on mankind, meaning that the mischief of man will fall on his own head, and that the violence, the raging against God that humans are guilty of, by nature and by choice, will come on their own skulls. And so I think at this point of the passage, our next logical question is, what do we do with that? Uh, If our own nature, if our own choices to rebel against God lead to such a terrible end, what do we do? And that brings us to the final verse, the final lesson David has for his readers, that last W. In verse 17, we see what he does. And it's so powerful. It's so amazingly biblical. It, just, it points so strongly to the gospel. He simply gives thanks to God, and he praises his name. That's it. Wait, where's the list of actions? Where's the promise of sacrifice or the pilgrimage? Where's the commitment to offer his firstborn son or something drastic like that to the Lord? Where's the works? Because isn't it works of righteousness that make up for the deeds of evil? No, no. We should note that an explanation of David's righteous deeds are conspicuously absent. They're not here. David's confidence in Psalm 7 is far more in a righteous God who responds to repentance It's far more in a God who delivers than in David's ability to manufacture righteousness or save himself. What we see in the final verse is the other side of repentance. What we see is faith working itself out in thanksgiving and praise. David believes his request for deliverance will be answered, not so much because of what he's done, but because of who God is. And so he simply, powerfully, humbly gives thanks to God. So at the, the, at the end of Psalm 7, we see this last piece of the puzzle of David's instruction fall into place. He showed us who to turn to, the sovereign, all-knowing God over all who saves and who delivers. He showed us what to ask for, an end to evil, and God's righteous judgment in its totality. He showed us who the judge is, a righteous God who will not suffer forever, the offense of unrepentant humans. And he showed us what to do. Give thanks to God that his righteousness demands and praise his name. See, but there's a tension that runs through this song. There, there's a tension that I hope you felt throughout our entire time this morning, and it's a tension created by a fundamental understanding that any intellectually honest person would say, we aren't naturally righteous. If God were to judge us according to our righteousness, according to the integrity that's naturally in us, It would not go well for us. So how do we, the unrighteous, truly become thankful for the righteousness of God? How do we praise the name of a righteous judge? The same way David did. Through repentance of sin, turning away from our nature that rebels against God, and choosing instead faith. David trusted God completely with his soul. And what if I told you, you can do the same? You can. In the person of Jesus Christ, you absolutely can. Listen to this from the book of 1 John. I hope it sounds familiar to many of you. 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world. So the important word here is propitiation. And in our series in 1 John, this word came up often, and today we get to remind ourselves of its importance. Propitiation is tied, it's rooted to this Old Testament idea of an animal, sacrificing, sorry, animal sacrifice absorbing the wrath of God that comes on sin. And so when Psalm 7 describes the deadly weapons of God, His sword and his bow and his fiery arrows, David's describing this wrath of God that's stored up for any man that does not repent of his evil. Any man that causes God to feel indignant. But what about the man that does repent? For that person, the person who repents, the person who recognizes that he is in spiritual danger, like David did, the person who recognizes and asks God to deliver them through his righteous judgment of all things, including themselves, that person, the wrath of God gets diverted off of them. It gets absorbed by God's own Son. Anyone who has the Psalm 7 conviction that they need to be rescued from their own sinful nature and from their own God-offending choices, that person will enter into a courtroom of God, with the great assembly gathered around him, and their guilt will be placed on Jesus, who absorbs it all. Jesus was given to the enemy to be torn apart and trampled, so we didn't have to be. Jesus experienced the deadly weapons of God, so anyone who repents no longer has to fear him. That repentant person who puts their faith in Jesus will be rescued, for they have taken refuge in the righteousness. Of God. So the next part about propitiation that we need to understand, church, is that not only has the wrath of God that we deserved been diverted onto Jesus Christ, but the sinless and morally perfect, the righteous life of Christ is given to us. <laughs> This is the glorious scandal of the gospel. Anyone who repents and believes in Jesus in faith will be established among the righteous. And anyone who trusts in this good news and takes refuge in the righteousness of God will see their own evil brought to an end. And anyone who genuinely experiences that, they cannot help but see that work of Jesus and turn around and give him thanks. They delight in showering the name of God with praise because they know that they were saved from their spiritual enemy. Not because of anything they did. They didn't deserve it. So redemption, according to Psalm 7, how do we seek refuge from the enemy that would tear our souls apart? We thankfully take refuge in the righteous judgment of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the glorious truth of the gospel. We thank you so much for the work of Jesus Christ who absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf and gives us his righteousness instead. Lord, we see such powerful truths in Psalm 7 that this man, David, a man after your own heart, understood repentance and faith. And today we can understand it all the more clearly because of what we know about Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to look around us with spiritual eyes wide open, and I pray that you would teach us how to more and more submit ourselves into your refuge I pray that we would take refuge in the righteous judgment of God. Thank you, Lord, for your truths. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.